Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thank you for joining GPB for this Monday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Virginia Prescott, sitting in for Bill Nygut, who had a longstanding obligation. He regrets he could not be here to talk about the life and legacy of Supreme Court Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died on Friday at 87 from complications of cancer. Even before being named to the high court, she was a trailblazer in American law. She became, in the words of Chief Justice John Roberts, a justice of historic stature who achieved the closest thing the court ever had to rock star status with her cross-generational appeal. And the political battle to fill her seat is already in full swing as we welcome our panel today. With us is the Honorable Justice Leah Ward-Sears, former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Georgia. She's now a partner at Smith, Gambrell & Russell. Justice Sears, nice to have you with us. Thank you. It's good to be here. Appreciate it. Also here, Dr. Andra Gillespie. She's political science professor at Emory University. Andra, so glad to have you with us. Thank you. And Jim Galloway, he's lead political writer at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It is Monday, so he is here. Thanks for being with us, Jim. No, it's great to be here. Jim, I'm going to start with you. Thousands laid flowers on the steps of the Supreme Court over the weekend. There were vigils across the country, including in Georgia. What strikes you about how Ruth Bader Ginsburg is being remembered? Just, uh, it, it's just. Uh, I will tell you what's most striking is the giant stature she has uh, in, in 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 public, and she was such a small, tiny, physical figure on the bench. Uh, it was you know you're almost asking the wrong person in the wrong generation. Uh, uh, the, the conversation in, in in my house uh, yesterday was 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 kind of kind of focused on 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 my older daughter, which who I think is 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 about Andra's age, uh, mid thirties, and and she uh, and and we were trying to figure out. We made a trip to uh, to uh, Washington in 1994 during a great blizzard, and one of our one of our big big events was sitting in on the Supreme Court, and we were trying to desperately find out what case uh, was being heard and uh, because because I remember Ginsburg being there because she was so small but but my daughter couldn't, and it was it, she kind of missed that. She's she 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 ached to remember exactly which one it was. Uh, these are these are these are these are young women. My, my daughters, uh, they're the ones with the the RBG action figures, <laughs> you know the the and 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 we've got I've got other members in the family who who have uh, something close, you know, candles, candles, glass candles with with uh, Ruth Bader's uh, Ginsburg's image on them. Uh, <laughs> It's it, it's so it's it's uh, it, it's almost. Uh, I would suggest we go go to the younger youngest member of this panel here. Okay, young lady, Andre Gillespie. <laughs> <laughs> You're being called out. You know, many people feel as if they knew her, right? Mm-hmm. What what do you think that was that appeal? Why do you think this woman from the Supreme Court, normally kind of a black box as far as personalities are concerned, crossed so many generations? Um, well, first, I have to thank Jim for thinking that I'm that young, because actually I'm not. I'm a bona fide Gen Xer. But, um, you know, I think there were a number of things. I think the people who were um, really in, you know, who were really enthralled and captivated by her were captivated by the stances that she was taking, particularly in her dissent. Um, and so if you were somebody who uh, was interested in civil rights, um, and you saw Ruth Bader Ginsburg as being the bulwark against court rulings that were seeking to take rights away from people, then you saw her stance as being one that was heroic, and you saw it as being forceful. So the types of people who have been gathering at the Supreme Court are likely those who look at, you know, the work that she did in codifying sort of laws against sex discrimination um, and looking at voting rights and looking at LGBTQ rights, like all of these things were things where she had been on their side in terms of her judicial opinions. And so they saw her um, as an icon. And then, you know, I think part of the reason why it it became catchy from the blog post that was originally done a few years ago is she just happened to have the right initials and so it fit really well sort of with the old moniker from a notorious big and so you just have to change a couple of letters um and it works but 
you know, you know, one of the things that, that that I will say in sort of thinking back on my own interaction, so not a few years after, only a couple of years actually after uh, Jim and his daughter went to the Supreme Court, uh, you know, I had a professor in college who would take me, um, take my classmates to the Supreme Court as a matter of course. And I got to do it twice. So there was one year where I was definitely going to do it because I was in the honors program. And then I won a lottery because I was taking con law that year. And so I got to see it twice. And I think the first time it was uh, Justice Souter. And then the second time it was Justice Ginsburg. Um, and so, you know, it was just that idea. I don't remember shaking her hand. It was one of those we got, you know, pushed into a room. She came, talked to us. It was really gracious. Um, taught me really important things in terms of thinking about what protected status meant. And, you know, it's something that has stayed with me ever since. Yeah. And she's got a very American story. Humble beginnings in Brooklyn. She went to Cornell Law on a full uh, Cornell on a full scholarship, and then to Harvard. She met Marty Ginsburg at Cornell. So let's just pause for a moment and hear from the justice herself. Here she is talking about her husband at her confirmation hearing. I have had the great good fortune to share life with a partner, truly extraordinary for his generation. A man who believed at age 18, when we met, that a woman's work, whether at home or on the job, is as important as a man's. I became a lawyer in days when women were not wanted by most members of the legal profession. I became a lawyer because Marty supported that choice unreservedly. Leah Ward-Sears, she was a woman of many firsts, as are you. First woman to serve as Chief Justice of the Georgia Supreme Court. First black woman Chief Justice in the U.S. What is her example of breaking those kind of barriers to you? Everything. Uh, She was everything to me. She was uh, I'm 65 years old, so I'm I'm a baby boomer. And I don't know what her generation was called, but she was uh, 20 years, 20-some-odd years ahead of me. I'm a Cornell graduate as well. And uh, I was, you know, I thought about it. I sat up all last night. I actually could barely sleep because I was doing a lot of research and preparation for uh, this call. And I just was remembering back how difficult it was when I was coming through the when I, I graduated in 1980 and she graduated in in 60 and had I mean she had to do so much to get to where um, she was and in so doing she was breaking down barriers so that I the next generation could get to be who I was I couldn't I would never have been all those firsts that you just described without a woman like uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg breaking down barriers. You know, when I uh, started practicing law in Atlanta in 1980, I was at a, a big law firm. A, a very, it was very rare. First black woman there, Alston Miller and Gaines. It later became Alston, but only black woman there. Uh, she had no opportunity to do that. I mean, none. Not to be token or anything. Uh, I also uh, I looked at her as a North Star because uh, I was a woman that not only wanted a professional job, I wanted to be the best in my profession, but I also wanted a, a husband, a family, a home, and all that kind of thing. And the woman, women I looked, I was able to see who were ahead of me uh, were mostly defined, you could, at that point in time, and it's hard for some people to remember that, but you could be either one or the other. Mm-hmm. You know, the professional women were just professional women, and, and, and they were often laughed at, but they didn't have families, didn't have husbands, didn't have children, that kind of thing. So I admired her for being a Cornelian, uh, for being a feminist when feminist wasn't cool, uh, for I loved her style, her clothes were outstanding all the time. Very liked, elegant woman. Yeah, I mean, I liked her choice of music and opera. I also liked that she, uh, uh, which is what I try to do, she she crosses the aisle. She doesn't make these ridiculous partisan, you know, you're on that side, so I can't talk to you. You know, when you serve on a bench 
as long as she has you you have to understand people disagree but they can still be your friends and she clearly understood that she had a boy and a girl i had a boy and girl she was everything to me uh but she did her death did did kind of dredge up how difficult it was being a woman uh at, at at that time and when i came along and and frankly it's not you know we're not where we need to be at this point well, let's hear her. She's talking a little bit uh, with Nina Totenberg about okay. her about the many closed doors that she ran into and what that meant for her and Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. So I'll tell you what Justice O'Connor once said to me. She said, suppose we had been, we had come of age at a time when women lawyers were welcome at the bar. You know what? Today, we would be retired partners from some large law firm. But because that was, route was not open to us, we had to find another way. And we both end up on the United States Supreme, Supreme Court. So it was because of some of those closed doors, uh, not in, in spite of them, that she went on to become a pioneering advocate for gender equality and really made her name in American law. Who wants to pick this up? Andre, do you want to start with some of the big ways that our RBG, I'm going to call her, uh, changed American law? Well, I mean, so if we look at her advocacy, um, I think she's been described rightly as the Thurgood Marshall kind of, of sex discrimination. Um, and so if we look at the cases that she was arguing uh, when she was the head of the ACLU Women's Project, she was helping to dismantle laws and practices in this country that made unnecessary distinctions on account of sex. Um, and it was because of that. And I mean, and I know that there were some quibbles that I'm sure Justice Sears could actually help elaborate a little bit more that gender became a protected status. So when, you know, when we're thinking about uh, discrimination cases, when there are ways that uh, the state has discriminated against people on the basis of race or sex because they were discriminated against that way in the original Constitution. Now that we realize that that's wrong, you have to view the state has the burden of proof to justify why they need to make a distinction going forward. And so that became codified on the basis of race. She's responsible. I mean, she's you know one of the driving forces behind forcing states to try to prove why it makes sense for you to sort of have laws that make distinctions between men and women. There may be some reasons why it could perhaps be justified if you want to make accommodations for pregnancy, for instance, but, you know, it shouldn't be that way if you are, you know, trying to say that girls can buy beer before boys can, right? Like, that doesn't make any sense. So, um, you know, she really was a trailblazer, uh, you know, in, in, in that particular respect. And, um, you know, we all owe her a debt of gratitude and not just women. Um, because one of the ways that she did help to try to dismantle sex discrimination was to not only take up cases uh, where she was defending women, but where she was also defending uh, men's rights as well, where men were um, not being allowed certain benefits that women were allowed because of the perception that they didn't need it because they were men. Yeah, so <laughs> she often used men for those kind of cases. What do you think, Leah Ward-Sears, is that, was that strategic on her part? It, it was strategic uh, because she knew that she was going to go up against a court a system of all white men who just, I mean, some of this seems laughable. I was looking over some of the cases last night. It would just not fly. No one would really understand in this day and age. But back in those days, which really wasn't that far, it wasn't really that long ago, the idea was that women needed to be protected. They needed to be protected, and therefore you could discriminate against them to keep them sort of in a place where they could stay safe and protected. I mean, that, uh, that was the rationale. Uh, but this, this new test that you couldn't discriminate against women did benefit. It went, benefited men. I mean, and she said that, you know, women's rights is men's rights is children's rights is family rights. Um, you know, she took on cases for men uh, who, uh, like, only women would get this, not men, uh, this kind of bit. I think it was a Social Security case. You know, if your spouse died, if your spouse died, only women could get a benefit, mm -hmm. not men. Women needed to be taken care of, and, and that's sort of ridiculous in today's time, but that's, that, that's what the law was back then. 
So she uh, argued several cases in front of the Supreme Court on gender rights cases. I think six cases, one, five of them, if I've got that right. Right. Um, but looking at her record, you, Justice of the U.S. Court of Appeals, named by Jimmy Carter, in fact, in 1980, uh, then to the Supreme Court, named by President Clinton in 1993. How about her record there? Uh, Jim, do you want to pick that up? Some notable dissents, certainly, on the part of her, and sometimes blistering dissents in the way that she read them. How did she make her mark on the court? Well, she, she in, in, in in two fashions. Number one, you're you're right. I mean, she wrote some 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 very very sharp dissents on on in in cases where she was losing, trying to lay in the lay the groundwork for for for, for future cases. Uh, I, one thing that one thing that I think we're, we're we're missing here is that she was kind of, you know, as. Uh, since '87, uh, 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 nominations to the Supreme Court have gotten just so. Beginning with with Robert Bork, they've just gotten so partisan, and and so knockdown drag out. Uh, a couple things to remember here is number one, when Clinton did approve her, I mean it was I mean it was a very quick and very natural approval. Uh, it was it, I, I I don't recall a whole lot of opposition. Uh, it was uh, it was uh, it was done in a matter of 42 days. It was kind of uh, one of the one of the quicker ones uh, that we've had in the last. Very, in the in the last few decades, but the other part of that is is this friendship that she had with Antony Scalia. Mm-hmm. I think I, I I think we cannot overlook that because it it it, bespe- it bespeaks to what what Justice Sears was was saying before that 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 she wasn't she wasn't taking her decisions personally that there was a social aspect uh, and and the relationship that she had even with the most conservative figure on the, on the bench that kind of that, that that contradicted the process by which all these justices justices are coming to the bench uh and and it's 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 one of the great tragedies that of course you know she, i mean uh, uh within 24 hours of her death on friday uh, we were back to that that partisan split that mm-hmm. that that partisan war yeah, uh, he- even even on yom kippur well, you know, I've had the pleasure of interviewing both uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Stephen Breyer. Both of them spoke of the camaraderie in the court and singled out that lifelong friendship with Antonin Scalia and Justice Ginsburg. This was a point of pride for them. Lee Ward Sears, where do you think that is now? I know you said that maybe those distinctions are not as big inside of the courts as they are in the public. Can you comment on that? Well, they are very big. These personal, these friendships with people that people don't think you'd be friends with are strong. You know, uh, they exist. They're very important. I think the last time, uh, I think I read somewhere that uh, um, uh, Justice Ginsburg was on the court, um, she was being helped off very carefully by Clarence Thomas. Uh, to, he held her hand and helped her walk down. And these these friendships with people who have, don't have your don't think the way you do it all, you know, it's uh, are strong, uh, but but and and respectful. You know, you really do get strong, respectful friendships and and all that on the court. So uh, I hope that can can remain. I'm not sure. Uh, you know, the it looks like the court is is going to get damaged. It, the court is being damaged, mm-hmm. not by the justices, but uh, by all this wrangling. And uh, I don't know what we're going to do about it. Whether you're on the right or you're on the left or real moderate, it doesn't matter. We have to have a a supreme court that we can trust. And I hope somebody at some point. Maybe we'll have a commission or, okay, have a commission and think about ways to reform the court. All right. We're going to take a break and get to that. What is going on with this political battle? The war paint is already being donned by both sides, Republicans and Democrats. Going to take a quick break and come back with more on the life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the fallout and the aftermath of her demise at 87 on Friday. This is Political Rewind. Stick around. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
We're back with Political Rewind. My guest, Dr. Andre Gillespie, the Honorable Lee Award Sears, Jim Galloway from the AJC, talking about the death and life of, of R- Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. Hours before her death, she dictated this message to her granddaughter. My most fervent wish is that I not be replaced until a new president is installed. Maybe an unusually blunt statement from an unusually blunt justice. Some are calling it her last dissent. But since then, as as the country has, we're going to have to turn to what is going on with this political battle. Signs that the Republicans and Democrats were arming up uh, within hours of her death, really, on Friday night. So before we get to the Georgia delegation, have to talk about Mitch McConnell's response and why Democrats are calling foul and hypocrisy. I think a lot of listeners probably know about this, but I'd love to hear you sort of summarize it for us, Andre Gillespie. Well, um, so I think it's somewhat ironic that the last two deaths on the Supreme Court were best friends, you know, in terms of Antonin Scalia and, and, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right. and that both of their deaths um, sort of portended a potential for a president to nominate somebody who was ideologically dissimilar from the departing justice. Um, so when uh, just Scalia died in February of 2016, uh, Mitch McConnell um, said that he wouldn't uh, consider Merrick Garland, who President Obama nominated anyway to the Supreme Court because it was an election year. And he did, and I do want to sort of, you know, be honest about this, say that, um, you know, he did note that it was because it was an election year and it was because uh, Congress, uh, the Senate was controlled by one party and the presidency was held by another uh, party. And so he argued that on the basis of election year and divided government that uh, this shouldn't proceed. So the um, about face here in 2020, uh, you know, is more of the election year kind of hypocrisy. And because Justice Ginsburg is dying within, you know, six and a half weeks of an election, right, it seems like this is, there's no way that this doesn't become hyper politicized. Um, and so if you're going to make the argument four years ago that you should uh, let the people decide who the president is and then let whoever that person is choose the next justice of the Supreme Court, it would seem like it would be most fitting in this case. But what McConnell is falling back on is the idea that the president and the Senate are controlled by the same party, so therefore that it's okay. You know, I went back to the uh, Washington Post uh, op-ed where uh, Senator McConnell and, and, and Chuck Grassley sort of made their case. One of the other reasons that they were saying this was that they also saw on the horizon sort of that uh, Republicans were uh, sort of ascending in terms of gaining seats. And Mm -hmm. so they were looking at the 2014 um, election uh, results where uh, Republicans had taken control of the Senate. Uh, You know, they didn't reference 2010. They were looking at 2014 in particular. And while there, um, you know, have certainly been Republican gains in terms of Senate seats, in um, the, you know, in, in election cycles, we also have to look at the states in, in which this is happening. And I don't necessarily know that that is portending of a wave of sort of Republican control um, of the Senate. Uh, so in, in, in that particular case, I'm not quite sure that the divided government argument holds sway. And I think the question that we have to ask is whether or not in the interest of fairness, people actually think it's, it's appropriate to play this type of gamesmanship right now at this particular moment. So, you know, I'll note very quickly that um, Marquette University asked a question in a poll last week uh, before, you know, Justice Ginsburg died. And and most Americans were in favor of naming a successor to the Supreme Court should a vacancy come up. We'll have to look and see kind of what new uh, polling data comes out sort of in defense of that this week. But, you know, I think it's a question of, you know, did Americans say that for the sake of fairness? Um, and what does that mean in the case of, you know, uh, you know, just uh, President Obama having been denied his opportunity to, to give Merrick Garland a hearing in 2016? Well, so, well, the, the, I would love to talk about wh- whether that message is actually sticking with Americans. Of course, a lot of, uh, of Democrats have cried foul and posted messages of previous statements by people like uh, Lindsey Graham, the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee, others who said, absolutely not, should we vote, should we put another name on the floor during an election year, Uh, inviting them to eat their words, certainly. But but it's also forced the hand of any wavering Republican. So, Jim, I'd love to know what kind of responses Georgia Republicans in tight races gave to the announcement of Senator McConnell. Well, of course, you, you've, you've got you've got uh, you've got two Senate races here. In uh, uh, actually, uh, we've we haven't heard a whole lot from Kelly Loeffler in in race number two. 
Uh, we have heard a lot of from Doug Collins, who was who was very quick on the trigger with a reaction via Twitter, where he she he accused of of uh, Justice Ginsburg of being complicit in the death of uh, 30 million abortion deaths, which uh, g- got him quite a bit of attention, which I'm sure was part of the point. Uh, uh, it, the more interesting to me, the mo- most interesting uh, reaction came from from David Perdue, mm-hmm. uh, who's who's in, in, a, in a race with John Ossoff. Uh, he he has tweeted out that that the he he that uh, he expects uh, Trump to make an, uh, uh, name a replacement, and the Senate will take it up this year. Uh, and that's an important phrase, because the question is, do they have the vote before November 3rd or during a lame duck session after November 3rd? That's something that's going to be discussed in the Senate Republican caucus up in D.C. On, uh, t- uh, tomorrow afternoon when they when when senators come back to Washington. Uh, and and I think that the signals, the signals that I'm getting are, are, are that it's all uh, you're you're notice you're noticing this restraint. We will take it up and we will make have a vote on it this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now the question is, you know, is a is a vote before November third? You know, a lame duck session would raise, I think, questions of legitimacy. Yeah, or, yeah. Or, Let, let's yeah, let's roll those yeah. out, if you would. The, what, what the timing of this, whether it would be before November third, before the election, or after during a lame duck session, who benefits, let's say, uh, by either of those scenarios? I'd love to put that to you and to Andra. Well, the, well, the, the, the who who benefits is number one is if you if you if you have a vote on a Senate nominee and it's it's very controversial or it fails, then then does then that can be considered deflating. Uh, again, and and also it, working into this equation is who do you nominate? Mm-hmm. Uh, do do you do you nominate Barrett, uh, or do you n- nominate uh, uh, the 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 uh, court Legoa, of appeals Barbara judge Legoa. In, in, in in Florida, which is a very desperately needed state by Donald Trump? Mm-hmm. And then there's another nominee, a potential nominee in North Carolina. So so all of all of that has to be worked out first. Uh, and and if if uh, you know if 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 it's Florida or North Carolina, maybe you do hold that vote before November third. I do want to point out that Senator Kelly Leffler did tweet on on Friday night, not long after Senator McConnell, her support for his decision to fill the seat. Our country's future is at stake, and at real Donald Trump has every right to pick a new justice before the election. Andra, your thoughts on that, what it means. Like Right now, we have a number of—can Mitch McConnell, can his coalition— Hold. Has he got the votes? So far, a couple of senators have announced that they will not vote in favor of choosing someone before the election. Well, um, so uh, for, there need to be four defectors in order for this to kind of kill this. So we know that uh, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski have already dissented, and so all eyes are on people like um, Mitt Romney. Um, Cory Gardner in Colorado, um, even Chuck Grassley, based on things that he has said before. So if two of those three join with Collins and Murkowski, then uh, the issue is is dead on arrival. Um, Basically, you know, if you can, you know, keep it to, you know, 50 uh, Republican senators kind of going along with this and and then Vice President Pence plays the tiebreak, then they go ahead and, and, and proceed as normal. Um, you know, this changes uh, the election calculus because it invites, it actually makes more salient an issue that was kind of always there and under the surface. So I think the question here is who gets mobilized as a result of, of this particular election. So we know that courts have been a rallying cry for Republicans for years. We've seen President Trump use courts, and he was talking about the, you know, hundreds of judges that he's been able to name to the federal judiciary or, you know, as part of his stump speech. But now, um, particularly for voters who might be wavering, um, conservative voters, pro-life voters, you know, who might have been upset about COVID, what Republicans are hoping is that this reminds them of some of their first principles and that this actually hopes to undergird and mainstay uh, their support. I think that there are a couple of risks there. So part of the reason why there's been this discussion about this is that uh, President Trump's approval numbers, so not his elect numbers, but his approval numbers um, among um, uh, white evangelicals started to fall over the summer, according to Pew Research. 
Um, but the vote number hadn't changed. And so Pew, uh, Pew's number in the summer was at 82%, which is about where it was, according to exit polls in the 2016 election. So there were people who disapproved of the job he was doing who were going to vote for him anyway. So it's a question of, is there, uh, is that a feeling? Is there more wiggle room to mobilize more white evangelical voters, which could be the key in, you know, President Trump's victory, but it could also be the key in certain um, Senate victories. So it could help Lindsey Graham, for instance, in South Carolina, who's in a tougher race than he should have, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of stretch out a lead. Um, could it make, uh, you know, the difference in a state like North Carolina? Could it make a, you know, difference in a state like Georgia? I think this is why you see Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler taking the positions that they're taking um, in their own Senate races. I, you know, I don't know if it, you know, is something that could shore up a Susan Collins. Um, you know, I'm not sure, you know, if it could soar up a Martha McSally, though she's already taken the gamble that she's going to go uh, with the president um, on this. And I think the other thing that they haven't taken into account is that, Repub- uh, that Democrats are realizing that courts are important, too. And it's not just this week. You could see sort of discussions of courts kind of entering into um, the rationale for voting for Democrats in the 2018 election. And so when you see Democrats now reminding voters that it's not just about abortion, it's about the Affordable Care Act, um, or, you know, in the future, people start talking about it's about voting rights, and that would be a big issue if Barbara Lagoa um, ended up being uh, the nominee. Yeah, give us um, a little bit more on that. She made, mobilize both sides. She made well, a critical Lagoa, decision in, uh, in, in Florida recently. In Florida. So she actually supported requiring. So we know that uh, because of, I think it was a proposition or initiative for in Florida, that voters in 2018 um, supported giving ex-felons their voting rights back. Uh, the Florida legislature wants to make sure that all those felons have paid all of their court costs and fines before they get their voting rights back. Um, and she actually voted uh, in support of, 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 of this new law in Florida that would require that, which some civil rights advocates think is a poll tax, which most civil rights advocates actually believe is tantamount to a poll tax. So, yeah, I mean, so, like, just because this could energize Republicans, we also need to understand that it has the potential to do the exact same thing on the Democratic side. Yeah, that's something that Galloway wrote about this weekend, that this is a way, this is a reason for Democrats to coalesce. Can you pick up on that, Jim? Yeah, yeah, there are uh, two things. Uh, the first point from from uh, from from, uh, from this weekend is that uh, Georgia is very much like like uh, Arizona. Uh, Arizona has a a special election for the U.S. Senate between McSally and and Mark Kelly. Uh, it's not a it's 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 to fill out a term, which means if Mark Kelly wins on November third, he takes office as soon as that election is certified, which means he could be available during a lame duck session, and he would he would he would whittle down the Republican margin. Same thing in 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 Georgia, except the situation is a lot more. Uh, it's it's more of a far far more of a long shot. Uh, Kelly Loeffler has twenty candidates lined up against her. Uh, you have three prominent Democrats: Raphael Warnock, Ed Tarver, uh, a federal prosecutor and state senator out of Augusta, and Matt Lieberman, son of uh, son of of, of former Senator uh, Joe Lieberman in, in, out of Connecticut. Uh, and but if if Democrats can line up behind just just one of those candidates. They got a shot at getting 50 percent plus one on November 3rd. Not a great shot, but a, but, but a shot. Uh, the question is, can they bring themselves to do it? Right now, the, the, uh, you've got both Tarver and, and Lieberman saying they have no intention of dropping out. Uh, well, the other thing is here is, and picking up on something that Ander was saying, is that you, this morning you're already seeing some interesting messaging going on. Uh, of course, Doug Collins is is uh, is uh, is taking aim at Raphael Warnock, who is is uh, because of his declaration of himself as a a pro-choice uh, member of the clergy. Uh, you know, it's trying to set up a little battle. Warnock and 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 state Democrats are pointing to the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's up before the Supreme Court. Right, right, just after Election Day, November tenth, I think. Right, no, uh, November tenth, and and they are uh, they're they're saying who uh, you know clearly if you've got a if you've got a four four decision coming out of that court. Uh, uh, that that upholds the lower court decision, which does away with the Affordable Care Act. Uh, so you've got you've in the middle of a pandemic, you've got a you've got a, a another facet to a public uh, health care crisis. 
and 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 I, I it's a little bit harder it's not as visceral an argument as abortion is but i think you know it it, it does it does get to middle class concerns I want to also just address something that you said, uh, Raphael Warnock. Both John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock are going to be receiving more than $1 million from the take, a considerable takeover this weekend, since the death of, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The Democratic group ACT UP reported that it raised $12.5 million in two hours on Friday night. So that's like $100,000 a minute at some point. So, uh, as you said, could energize the Democrats. What does this mean for Democrats? And what does this mean for the idea that Andra spoke to that it is it is Republicans that coalesce and get energized by a court fight. Do you think, Jim? Well, it's I mean, look, it's 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 been a it's always been since since 73. Uh, abortion has been a, a, a rallying point for for Republicans. Uh, and and it, is, it is the thing that has tied evangelical Chris, uh, Christians, uh, white evangelical Christians to the to the Republican cause. Uh, and uh this gets when you when you when you but when you start talking about covid when you start talking about the affordable care act uh and and pre-existing con- conditions then you're talking about the the the, 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 you, the then you're addressing topics that make uh uh college educated uh white women which who are who are drifting away from the party uh, GOP very quickly. That's what that's what gets their attention. Uh, one thing to remember is back in in in, in 2018, in the sixth district, when uh, when uh, Lucy McBath beat Karen Handel. One of the most uh, unusual things about that contest was for the first time I think oh I, I, I probably in about 20 years you had a Democratic candidate who was who was. Uh, overtly campaigning with a pro-choice message, and she won in the sixth mm-hmm. district. Uh, that that's that's very important, I think. Uh, just to get to you, Leah Ward Sears, before the break, that you know, at the time of Antonin Scalia's death, two hundred and sixty-nine days until the general election. At the time of Ginsburg's death, just forty-four days. So the rush is on. Now you have been through the vetting process for federal judgeship and also consideration for the Supreme Court. What is that process like? Can this possibly happen in that amount of time? It can. I will tell you when I went through the vetting process for the seat that Sotomayor ultimately get, it is an extremely intense process. It's detailed. It's thorough. They look at your medical records. They look at your kids on Facebook. I mean, it is an amazingly thorough process. But some of these candidates have already been through that process. Um, Judge Barrett's already been through the process. Uh, it, uh, they ought to be able to... Uh, get somebody like her in really quickly, you know, because she's already been thoroughly vetted. I don't know about uh, Legault. Well, she's a, a federal district court. Mm-hmm, so 11th Judge, but, Circuit. Yeah, but it's different. You know, uh, being vetted, I was vetted for the 11th Circuit at one point. That's very, very different than going up to the Supreme Court where they put two lawyers on you and all your friends and all your friends' friends to go and find every little thing that, that that's that's there. Um, so uh, again, being vetted for a circuit court judgeship is different than. But Amy Barrett's already been vetted, and I understand the president was pleased with her. Right. He uh, says he will announce tomorrow on he, Tuesday his choice. Yeah. I mean, uh, I looked at her credentials. She. It appears of the those the women on the list. Um, she seems like, and I'm not impugning her one way or the other. But she seems like she would be the most polarizing. Now, how that works politically, I'll have to leave it to you guys who are in the more political things. But, I mean, she really seems uh, far right. I I personally, I don't know if there are any Protestants on the court anymore. She she is a Catholic. She's Uh, another Catholic. So so the the entire court is either Catholic or Jewish. Mm -hmm. Who's that? Who was? Gorsuch. Gorsuch. Okay, is so Gorsuch is Episcopalian. Yeah. Okay, so okay, just in terms of diversity, that's something. And uh, uh, but it's either Catholic, Jewish, or now one Episcopalian. I'd like to see more diversity. She did. She doesn't uh, uh, check the uh, the uh, 
Oh, Ivy League box, which is good. Right. Notre, okay. Notre Dame, I think. Yeah. We're gonna, let's talk about the dynamics of the court when we, after a short break. This is Political Rewind. Stick around with our panelists. We're talking about the aftermath of the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Be back in just a minute. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. We are back with Political Rewind. My guests, Dr. Andre Gillespie, the Honorable Justice Lee Ward Sears, and Jim Galloway from the AJC. I want to pick that up, what you were talking about. Um, to Just to reiterate, President Trump did make clear on Saturday night that he will nominate a woman to fill the seat, or that's what he said. Um, two leading candidates on his list. We mentioned Judge, Judge Barbara Lagoa. She's on the 11th Circuit here, and Amy Coney Barrett on the 4th Circuit. Now, now, Jim made the point that, you know, Trump and down-ticket candidates have been making some headway with the law and order messaging with suburban women and question of what an anti-abortion conservative woman would likely do for the women's vote. Andre, just wondered if you had a comment on that. Um, so, you know, I think that it's going to galvanize people based on what they already believe. Um, and so I think those folks were actually probably sort of firmly fixed. Uh, again, what I would say is I think particularly for those who might be inclined to be pro-life, but who have had their misgivings and doubts about Trump and have perhaps been shy and somewhat reticent. Uh, what uh, the Trump administration hopes and what Republicans hope more broadly is that people see this as a rallying cry to overlook any concerns that they might have with uh, how the administration has governed itself um, and what they think about Republicans in the hopes that that will sort of overlook all else. Because, you know, the pitch is basically going to be overturning Roe is going to be within our grasp with this particular court nomination. Now, whether or not that's true is an entirely different um, proposition, but it's going to be presented as like do this one more time to vote uh, to make sure that we overturn Roe, and then you know perhaps then we can talk about remaking the Republican Party and how to deal with Trumpism later. The the, the problem is that I do think that while Republicans have certainly had a head start on using courts as a rallying issue, Democrats are catching up, and they're going to catch up pretty quickly on this issue because there are a lot of people, especially people who uh, come from communities who have newly acquired rights, who see those rights as being in jeopardy. And I see them being equally passionate in their fight to try to make sure that they actually get to keep the rights that they've won. Well, I think you may be referring to DACA, the DACA decisions and the trans rights decisions perhaps over the weekend. All of it. I'm, I'm sorry, over it. the summer. I mean, that's yeah. the thing is not just replacing a conservative with a conservative or a liberal with a liberal, but actually changing the balance of the court for decades to come. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts has played the role of a moderate in 5-4 decisions, a number of them this term. How does that change his role, Andra? Um, so I would actually probably defer to uh, my colleagues at Emory who study this uh, differently. I, you know, this is where personal relationships come into play. I think for some of the most pressing issues in this particular court, particularly with the ACA case, you know, Justice Roberts may make the decision that it makes sense to actually delay arguments or delay making a decision on this case. It's not unprecedented. Um, actually, with Brown versus Board of Education, that was actually a holdover case because of the death of a justice on the court. So, um, you know, there may be some procedural moves uh, that could be made. Or, you know, if we are going to see decisions that end up being five, three decisions, it could be based, made on narrow points of the laws we've also seen happen. So, like, you know, instead of deciding on really big issues, you decide on small procedural issues that mean that there's going to have to be another case that makes its way through the system later. Mm -hmm. There's a question of what it means to have eight justices seated, something Andre brought up earlier. Um, we're slated to hear the third case on Affordable Care Act on November 10th with big implications, I think, politically on the election and perhaps even more urgently challenging the, the to voting that will likely come up for election on November 3rd. Some of the things that Democrats are talking about, options for them, especially if they win the Senate, if they take control of the Senate, would be court packing and the other of jurisdiction what is it? Jurisdiction setting? Uh, uh, limiting the, the kind of cases that can come to the court. Is, is that something that either of you are familiar with, any of the three panelists? 
uh, like totally redoing jurisdiction yes. to the, the yes, that is I'm one of familiar. the proposals. Yeah, I mean, I'm I've heard lots of proposals. So uh, term limits, eighteen mm-hmm. year term limits, staggered terms, expanding the court. Uh, this morning, I heard on CNN somebody say uh, make uh, Puerto Rico and Washington D.C. states, and there would be four more senators. Uh, all kinds of things. I do think, and I was saying this a little bit earlier before we went to break, that there needs to be some kind of major reform uh, of the of the uh, Supreme Court before this thing, because this tit for tat. I, somebody said yesterday, this is an eye for an eye, and an eye for an eye doesn't make good for blind justice is blind. It just blinds justice. And we really are going to have to reform the court to make it uh, a balanced court and and to stop all this gamesmanship. I mean, this is, we we shouldn't be even having to have this discussion. This is, you know, this is on both sides. I mean, both sides have played this game. It's time for it to stop. We need some major reforms. Not that this whole thing, this political process will go away, but uh, I, I'd like to see a commission or something. Jim, is that something you want to pick up on, please? Yeah, yeah. I, I, th- I think another idea has been, you know, to make the Supreme Court a, a court of original jurisdiction and then set up maybe even another panel for for, for constitutional issues. One of the reasons, I mean, I, I think we can't forget the reason that we've, we have begun to place so much importance on the, on the U.S. Supreme Court is because Congress has completely broken down mm-hmm. and is failing its job. And, and, and uh, I, we spoke earlier in, 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 in the program about, about justices sending messages of, uh, to, to Congress. You know, you can handle this. You can fix this. Well, Congress has spent the last 20, 30 years not fixing things. Mm-hmm. And so, and so we have relied more and more on this on the high court. Andre? And so keep in mind that any of these judicial reforms have to pass through that dysfunctional Congress mm-hmm. um, and then have to be signed in law by the, by the president. So in a divided Congress, if you're know, trying to get it through in this session, like that's just not going to happen, right? No. Um, and so the only way that it could possibly happen is if you have unified party control in the next Congress. And, and, and I would caution sort of against making too many drastic changes, right, because they could come back to haunt you later. Which has happened now. Uh, Justice Sears? Well, I'd like to see reforms well thought out, you know, not not just in the moment changes, but a, some kind of commission, blue ribbon or something like that, that really thinks about reforming uh, the U, the uh, United States Supreme Court, because it's certainly uh, it certainly needs some kind of reform. You know, the justices now uh, serve way longer than anybody ever anticipated. Uh, and, and these justices, if they come on in their 40s and stay till they're 80, we're talking about 40, 35, 40 years. It used to be that you'd serve 10 or 15 max mm-hmm. because of life expectancy and the and picking younger and younger justices. So, Amy, Amy, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, in fact, would be the youngest justice if she and, were and proposed. And she she's 51 or? I think she's 42. Oh, is she? <laughs> I don't think she's 42. Okay, we're all 40. over. Yeah, so, and so if she served as long, I mean, she as, as uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it would be 40 years, uh, 39, 40 years. That's okay. uh, that's too long. That's way too long to serve. I just want to wrap it up. I mean, is there the political will to do that? I mean, we're looking at the political the, – the Supreme Court especially has become highly politicized. We talked earlier about the days of Scalia and Ginsburg and their friendship, you know, like in the days of Congress. You know, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan had right. this great relationship with each other. Are those days of befriending those who disagree with us behind us in, in 2020? I, I don't want to sound like Pollyanna. Maybe I do, but I, I think that's the only way to save the court, because otherwise it's going to be I stick you and you stick me and I stick you and you stick me and the whole thing's going to fall apart. That's what I think. How about you, Andra? Um, you know, I think we look at the mid-20th century as sort of the hallmark or the ideal, and I think we need to sort of look back, and there have been other contentious points in American history, and so uh, I think we need to 
understand that polarization happens more often than we care to think. But I think the mid 20th century sets itself up as sort of an, a hallmark and ideal. There's certain things that we're going to have to learn to do differently. Like that works because all of the elites were culturally homogeneous. Hmm. And so we're going to have to learn how to navigate when people really are more diverse than, than the other. I think the thing that we aren't seeing enough here is sort of common respect and collegiality mm-hmm. um, and respect for institutions. And that might help to help people who see themselves as being very different from each other to be able to find common ground even when they disagree. So I am like Justice Sears. I do hope that we get back to sort of a place of comedy and collegiality uh, one day. I think it's easier to do in the court because it's nine people and they get to do a lot behind closed doors. Yeah. But those bigger bodies with, you know, 100 and 435 people also need to, to be able to do that. Um, and it starts, uh, you know, at the top. And so if it's being modeled by the executive branch, then perhaps other people will sort of learn to follow suit. Jim Gallo, we've got a minute to go. What do you think? Uh, I would say I would build on what Andre said, and I think uh, what's got to happen first is we've got to get past this demographic uh, hump that we're headed toward, and and it has to become part of the uh, part of part of our dialogue, part of our makeup. Uh, you 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 do have a a a kind of a a white ruling elite that's resisting this, and I think until you uh, until you until you get to a to a, a a point where where our our diversity is is, is accepted, I I don't think you're going to have a, uh, a a Congress that works very well, and that hence you will not have a Supreme Court that works very well. Well, I think we have plenty of October surprises yet to come. I'm sure you will all be there to talk about those with Bill, the Honorable Lee Award Sears. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Currently a partner at Smith Gambrell and Russell LLP. Dr. Andre Gillespie, as always, political science professor at Emory University. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. And Jim Galloway, lead political writer from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Thank you so much. Great to be here. He will be back on Wednesday. Political Rewind is produced by Sam Burmas Dawes. Senior producer is Amelia Brock. Our engineer is Jesse Nyswanger. I'm Virginia Prescott. In for Bill Nygut, who really regrets he couldn't be here today, but will be back tomorrow. Thanks so much for joining us.